0: This is the InFocus podcast from The Hindu.
1: Hello and welcome to The Hindu's In Focus podcast with me, Amit Barua, your host for this episode. Democrats have performed better than expected in US midterm elections to the House of Representatives and the Senate. In the House, a Republican advantage looks to be slender, And the Senate is still up for grabs with a couple of seats set to be the decider. Exit polls suggest that inflation and abortion were key issues in the minds of American voters. Nearly 60% of voters surveyed said they were dissatisfied or angry with the U.S. Supreme Court overturning abortion rights. So, did the abortion issue allow the Democrats to perform better? Did it help in turnout at a time when President Joe Biden's approval ratings are down? To answer some of these questions, I'm joined by Narayan Lakshman, associate editor at The Hindu and a former Washington correspondent of the newspaper. Welcome to the InFocus podcast, Narayan.
0: Thanks for having me, Amit. It's a pleasure to join you today.
1: So, Narayan, my first question, what do you make of these uh, results stroke trends?
0: Well, Amit, as you said, I think there has been some shifting of ground that has happened, some of it in favor of Democrats and some going the other way to the Republicans. On the one hand, the House of Representatives, the lower house of the U.S. Congress, has uh, shifted towards the Republicans. It was controlled by the Democrats. And uh, right now, I think the latest count puts it at 210 seats to 192 seats. That is... Republicans versus Democrats, uh, where 218 seats out of the uh, 435 seats is required for control of the House. So the Republicans have done well in that sense, uh, taking back the House of Representatives from the Democrats. I think an interesting historical fact to uh, remember here is that the House has flipped to the party not controlling the White House after the midterm elections under each of the three past presidents, which include Donald Trump, Barack Obama and George W. Bush. So in a sense, it's also widely understood that the midterm elections informally serve as a referendum on a sitting president. And to that extent, they say something to us about how the American voters view the performance of uh, President Joe Biden at this time. But we can obviously get into that in greater detail on an issue basis. But at the broad level, like you said, uh, something has changed in the balance of power in Congress. Um, The House has shifted one way, as I said. The Senate, however, remains on a knife edge. It was 50 seats each with uh, Vice President Kamala Harris, obviously a Democrat, able to cast a deciding vote in the event of a tie. That was the previous setup until now. Uh, At this point, uh, I think as counting is still underway and it's important to note that one should not get ahead of the counting and call the result too early. uh, While counting is underway, 49 seats have already gone to the Republicans where the Democrats hold 48 seats. And there are three states where counting is underway and it's pretty much up for grabs. Uh, And in two of them, that is, I think... uh, Arizona and Georgia, Uh, the Democrats seem to have a lead. Whereas in the state of Nevada, the Republicans seem to have a lead. Uh, We can talk a bit more about that. But again, it's hard to call early because the counting proceeds in fits and starts. And one can get surprise results at the very end, which means that we just have to be patient and wait a bit longer.
1: So clearly all these caveats are important. But, but what is your sense? I mean, overall, uh, you know, we'll get back to the results in some detail. But, uh, you know, the overall trends, uh, you know, Biden's popularity, uh, you know, Donald Trump uh, possibly planning another run, though he's termed uh, these results uh, somewhat disappointing. What's your sense of what these midterms will, you know, in a sense, will they chart a course uh, for the years ahead about who's going to run against whom? What's your sense on that?
0: Well, I mean, that's a really uh, the question, you know, that goes to the heart of American democracy as it stands today, because, uh, as I said, in a sense, it's a referendum on President Biden, who also, by the way, is has holds the record for being the oldest president to enter office. And he will be even older still, should he consider a second run. And I think this midterm will rather decisively set the tone for whether that's a possibility for him or not. Uh, I think uh, the loss of the Senate would be quite incalculable. Already the House is lost to Democrats, it looks like. Um, And without the Senate, President Biden's policy agenda will be hobbled for the remaining two years of his term. So a very good example is the case of judicial nominations. Uh, You know, President Biden has appointed Ketanji Jackson to the Supreme Court, the first African-American woman to hold that role. Uh, and he has, compared to both Barack Obama and Donald Trump, uh, his two immediate predecessors, appointed made far more judicial appointments and nominations at this stage in his presidency. But that could grind to an unpleasant halt for him and for the White House if the Senate goes the Republican route. And in that sense, I think Republicans are already tasting blood in the water and they are pushing forward their campaigns. I I think the big question on the Republican side is going to be whether Trumpism as a phenomenon, which we have seen unleashed over the last several, uh, many years since 2016, at least, in fact, uh, will still hold sway or not. And that is a very multi-layered, multi-pronged question, because obviously one part of it is Trump's uh, sense of Uh, election result denial, if you will, about the 2020 election, and that itself has become a part of his movement. Election denial is now, I would would say, a a definitive attribute of Trumpism. Uh, And a number of candidates have come to the fore who represent that view. I think already quite a few of them have lost in the House races, but a few of them have won as well. So the real question is, will this midterm set some sort of a platform up for Trump's inevitable uh, presidential run in 2024. And I think we're going to see you know, a tussle between him and his own Republican rivals, for example, Florida, Governor Ron DeSantis, who has also indicated he might throw his hat in the ring. Uh, we're going to see the balance of power within the Republican Party shift more towards Trump or less towards Trump, depending on how the candidates he has endorsed perform and whether, in fact, the Republicans as such uh, who have broadly leaned on Trump for support, capture the Senate, as we uh, talked about earlier. So I think in that sense, as you rightly asked, Amit, this midterm will tip the scales a little bit in favor of President Biden and the Democrats and their future run prospects uh, versus Mr. Trump, who is definitely gearing up for a 2024 run. And we can, we can pass apart further issues that come up uh, along the way in terms of policy.
1: And uh, now, Na- what is uh, you know you you've been the Hindus Washington correspondent. You've seen all this at close quarters. Why does the American press seem to underestimate Donald Trump?
0: Look, the American press, Amit, and you've probably seen numerous uh, instances of these, have had a turbulent relationship with Mr. Trump from day one, uh, to the point where the absolute nadir of that relationship was Mr. Trump identifying or defining the press as the enemy of the people. Uh, That raises very interesting questions about who the people, and I put that in quotes, are when Mr. Trump is out there throwing his campaign rhetoric as he goes from state to state. And I think the people, as he defines uh, them to be, refer to the group that not only the Trump campaign sees as disenfranchised by the existing mainstream setup, you know, which embraces liberal liberalization, which embraces the global economy, which embraces international trade, it is the group that is according to the Trump values and Trump propaganda uh, machinery, it is the group that has suffered as a result of those systems and as a solution to that, it is also the group that the Trump campaign proposes to bring benefits to, whether it's in terms of the more nativist populist approach towards economic policy making, which is you know, stop offshoring, or whether it is in terms of ending the U.S. government's financing of uh, to multilateral treaties, even such as NATO. And, you know, we've seen that can have an Im- enormous impact on uh, foreign policy issues directly. For, for example, the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And in fact, uh, I should add here that there are several Trump candidates who have actually said that they would be not in favor of giving a blank check to Ukraine in the event of them coming to power, one of them being Kevin McCarthy, a prospective House Speaker. And so Trumpism as such has an echo across all domains. The media is definitely one of them. But I think it is part of a very powerful evocative appeal that of that I that I described earlier as populist and nativist, which the floodgates to which were opened in 2016 with the very nomination and election of Trump. Um, But which continues to echo through the U.S. polity despite the Biden win. So I think for President Biden to come into the White House, it actually was a reactionary wave from the Democrats who greatly feared the power of the Trump appeal uh, when they saw how decisively that could change people's mind. Most importantly, independents and undecided voters 20, in the 2016 election. So we are going to be looking closely at these results as well, Amit, to see what it tells us about the future of Trumpism, how the media will be treated going forward, how this nativist appeal will echo across the US policy polity going forward.
1: Uh, and Nanan, I wanted to ask you, what is your sense? You know, 60% of voters surveyed in exit polls said they were angry at the US Supreme Court overturning Roe versus Wade. Do you think that this was a factor in the Republicans not doing as well as had been projected?
0: Absolutely, absolutely, Amit. I think this was actually an unexpected blowback that the Republicans have suffered in the sense that the reading down of Roe versus Wade, which is the constitutional right to abortion, and to read it rather in terms of a decision that had to be made by political representatives at the state level and every state would obviously have its own mandate on that. That reinterpretation of reproductive rights was seen as an adherence to the very classical Republican conservative view and has been in the making indeed uh, from the time of George W. Bush and uh, down through to Donald Trump who... Uh, partly aided by luck and timing, but partly aided by a very deliberate campaign to tip the scales of the Supreme Court of the United States. The SCOTUS in a particular direction uh, has, has been, it's been moving along in that direction. And so now with a 6-3 conservative majority, an overwhelming majority of conservatives on the Supreme Court, it was hardly surprising that that was going to come. But I think what it did was it had an electrifying effect The reading down or reinterpretation of Roe v. Wade has had an electrifying effect on Democrats and the Democratic or liberal base of the United States, wherein it has raised an extreme sense of alarm, I would call it, that today it is bad enough that women requiring abortions across states may, especially from, you know, impoverished or below the poverty line or below the average uh, median incomes, they the the fate that they would suffer when they had to seek abortions, maybe travel across state lines, or in the worst case scenarios, you know, engage unsafe abortion practitioners, uh, unlicensed practitioners, or an even worse case, not even have or be able to avail the right to re- uh, an abortion. It is bad enough that these women would have to face this uh, this fate. This is the view of the Democrats. But tomorrow, there could be a reinterpretation and reading down of other landmark progressive achievements and uh, you know interpretations handed down by the supreme court including for example the marriage equality act so the right to have uh, for gay marriages for civil partnerships that were gay lesbian transgendered and so on and i think this as i said ha- has this electrifying effect. Has led to greater mobilization, and preliminary polling data in a number in different parts of the United States suggests that that has indeed happened. It was expected, and it seems to have happened, and it has resulted in especially younger Democrats turning out in far greater numbers to polling stations. And you know, for example, in Pennsylvania, we did have that surprise flipping of the seat from Republican to Democrat, where the uh, incumbent, I think his name is John Fetterman, has defeated. The Trump backed Mehmet Oz, a Republican who is strongly endorsed by President Donald Trump. And that flipping of the seat has obviously lent much greater strength to the Democratic voice in the Senate. Um, and I think that is something that tips the scale the other way. And we're going to watch uh, with great interest how this back and forth happens because uh, like you hinted, Amit, I think very much reproductive re- uh, rights and uh, gay rights and many of these and issues such as immigration and criminal justice reform uh, these are going to stay not just on the ballot but stay in the public discourse going forward depending on the tone that the midterm election results sets
1: and would you say uh, you know the rights agenda or in this case uh, in trump's agenda is rather clear i mean You know, they don't um, make any uh, excuses for their views and so on. But it would appear that uh, whether we take the Democrats or other liberals across the world, I mean, sometimes they're very hesitant about pushing their agenda, saying they might alienate, uh, you know, voters who otherwise might be attracted to them. So is it time, say, for the U.S. Democrats to actually, you know, stay true to their positions and perhaps be a little aggressive about them?
0: That's a deeply, uh, you know, insightful question, Uh, Amit. I think that basically this is a phenomenon you've seen across the world. Like you've alluded, you know, we saw Brexit happening. Uh, We've seen, you know, soft or strong authoritarian regimes rising across the developing world, whether you're talking about, you know, Turkey or the Philippines or even India to an extent, which started this trend early on of strong leaders, centralizing leaders who, hold political power close to their chests and seek to alter institutional balances of power and institutional performance to take their political agendas forward. So that's something you've seen across the world. Um, I think certainly with the election of President biden and with reactionary movements happening in some other parts of the world too you've seen a democratic and liberal pushback against that as well and so that seesawing act is still very much going on um i think what has happened in many cases and i mean i would even refer our own uh, political system where you've seen parties like the congress and others having to shift a little bit more to the right even on religious issues i would refer you to what The Congress's positions have been in Kerala on the Sabarimala issue, for example. Parties that wouldn't embrace, you know, religio-ethnic, nativist identities are finding it very difficult to still maintain a secular position on those because of the sheer power of this nativist appeal of leaders such as Trump, who eschew political correctness in that context. And I think it is a very, it's a soul-searching question to ask whether... They are required to move closer to the political center or even to the right, or whether liberals and democrats should, in fact, pivot the other way, which is to the left and capture more of their, uh, you know, disenchanted far left base. Uh, and that would come down to the fine shades of gray and the nuances of polling which exists and whether you have a first-past-the-post system in different districts and states or not, it gets rather complicated and statistical at a a certain point. But broadly, as I would say, we've only, we have seen even, let's come back to the U.S., we've seen the Democrats occupying the center. So one good example is Trump really set ablaze uh, the whole trade war angle of U.S. foreign policy, especially with China with uh, tariffs being levied and counter tariffs being thrown back by Beijing. And while many hoped and expected that President Biden, when he came into office in 2020, would dial back those tariffs and dial down the uh, absolute high temperatures of that trade war, uh, has actually allowed many of them to stand because it was convenient to see them as leverage and as a stick with which to wield and uh, to impact other aspects of the bilateral relationship between Washington and Beijing. So in this, in in immigration, where, you know, uh, the very harsh policies that the Trump administration put in place, which at its worst saw uh, children, that is minors, being separated from their parents and held in uh, extremely severe conditions that raised alarm among human rights uh, organizations. We saw that situation happening. And I think the Trump administration, while it dismantled the worst of those, has not really address the border question or uh, you know deportation policies in a major way so i think it, it was it is still a situation of uh, the democrats attempting to hold on to the political center of the spectrum and uh, even on economic issues i think you know the big concerns today are The after effects of the COVID-19 pandemic, the impact on business activity, but unemployment is not yet plummeted or jumped off a cliff. Inflation, certainly as a result of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, has led to commodity price and the price of staples and energy going up a bit. But again, the Fed has been acting, the Federal Reserve has been acting on batting on the front foot there and trying to bring things under control. So I think you're going to see... A delicate balancing act, without any major shifts in political stance, should the Democrats retain control of the Senate, and that's why these midterms are so exa- uh, important. Amit, should they lose the Senate, however, you're going to see this Biden White House embroiled in a very difficult upward climb, where everything from judicial nominations to um, you know uh, proposals for budgetary expansions and so on to combat. The, economic, uh, the risk of economic downturn will be challenged and will face barriers. And you could be looking again at uh, extremely difficult policy log jams and government shutdowns uh, in Congress and through Congress. So that could be a very different scenario, which is why, again, the midterm results matter enormously and we'll be waiting to see how they unfold.
1: Narayan, before I let you go, I just want to turn to, uh, you know, the the governor races. And, uh, you know, I see uh, from uh, U.S. media reporting that 11 women have been elected governors, uh, you know, in different states. And um, an Indian origin woman, Aruna Miller, is the lieutenant governor elected in Maryland. So do you suggest, do you think that this sort of suggests uh, greater diversity in especially women coming into uh, offices of governance in the United States?
0: I think uh, definitely, Amit, it's a positive sign. Um, uh, Like you said, I think it's important in this conversation also to note the diversity of races that have happened. You know, there is a range of local elections that have been on the cards, including 39 state gubernatorial and other contests. In a number of states, Republicans, in fact, have held on to the governorships. Uh, including Texas, Florida, and Georgia, uh, and like you said, women have come into uh, positions of power. In a, but I wouldn't say in a dramatically new fashion. We have seen, you know, women candidates going quite far on both sides of the political spectrum. This it's certainly heartening that they have actually won some of these contests. But I would say the U.S. has been relatively gender balanced in that regard. It very much remains a male bastion, and as we saw the highest office in the land uh, has not yet gone to a woman so hillary clinton claim came the closest but uh, in that uh, rather memorable contest of 2016 she came a cropper and there was some uh, th- that is again unfortunately a part of the terrain a defining feature uh, definitely on the republican side and with the trump campaign where allegations of him being anti-woman and you know extremely nasty uh, personal vindictive comments, um, you know, attacking women in the bodily sense, in his comments and uh, in a disparaging manner. All of these uh, extremely unfortunate uh, sort of rhetorical uh, statements came to the fore during that campaign. I I would be very surprised to think that they had completely died away in the last four years and that Trump will emerge like a phoenix from the ashes, uh, reformed. I hardly think that's likely. In fact, um, you know, many of his members of his base would perhaps see that as part of the appeal because the sexism, the misogyny, the anti-minority view, the racism, all of that gets wrapped up into a certain kind of toxic rhetorical bundle and that held a certain kind of appeal which goes hand in hand with some of the, you know, what are seen as more legitimate claims in terms of winning back jobs for disenfranchised minority. So all of that comes as one big package. And I think Trumpism will go its head again uh, soon, if not through these uh, candidates who have done well in these midterms, definitely through Trump himself, and he has a second run for the highest office in the land in 2024.
1: Narayan Lakshman, thank you so much for talking to the Hindus in Focus podcast and sharing your views.
0: Thank you. Thanks for having me on.